Halloween, otherwise known as Reformation Sunday, which we'll hear about in a few minutes. Um, if I was to ask you uh, what the most significant event of the last thousand years was, or who was the most significant individual in, in history over the last thousand years, we might come up with a few answers. Uh, some people may say uh, uh, Christopher Columbus, who was, uh, uh, at least by some historians, uh, um, discovered the New World and started the colonization of, uh, of the New World from Europe. Uh, some people would say someone born just a little bit before, or right around when he was, uh, Gutenberg, who uh, invented the uh, movable press and allowed the mass publication of books, which greatly educated uh, the entire world and helped the world to grow an understanding of science and theology. Some people uh, may say it was uh, Benjamin Franklin who discovered electricity and changed the life of, uh, of the whole world through that. Some people may say it was uh, Susan B. Anthony who worldwide changed the worldview of women, although it was slow to take, but, but she was a pioneer. Okay, some of my tongue-in-cheek friends would say it was Thomas Crapper who in the 1860s invented the flushable toilet and made life unmeasurably easier for many, many people. We had to throw him in there. Uh, but I would submit that uh, the most significant event in history and, uh, and the most important individual um, was born November 10th, 1483, and at the age of 34, after studying for several years as a monk, recognized that the state of the church was in complete chaos and apostasy, and thus took the bold step of nailing 95 statements of why the church was in error to the door of the Wittenberg Church exactly 504 years ago today. And that individual was Martin Luther. So what do we know about Martin Luther? We know he was born, as I mentioned, in uh, Germany in uh, 1483, uh, studied as a monk, and was very, very disturbed because what he was studying in the book of Romans and what the church was teaching were in very, very great contrast. Now, to give you an idea of what the church was like in the early 1500s, they had just gone through uh, the time of, uh, of Pope Innocent, who wasn't. Uh, and it was particularly a rough time during Pope Innocent uh, because the church's corruption had reached an all-time high. Uh, the doctrine of indulgences were being taught uh, thoroughly, and the Catholic Church was getting rich off of this doctrine. The doctrine of indulgences basically was to say that uh, Jesus' death on the cross did not pay for all of your sins. You still, it was the beginning, but it wasn't the complete payment. But you could work off time in purgatory or even escape hell if you were to give money to the Catholic Church. And the more you gave, 
the more years you would escape and be able to get to heaven sooner. And money to the priests and money to the pope and money to the church were gathered and some great cathedrals were built with this money. A doctrine of works had, um, had invaded the church where, where one to ask a priest how was one to be saved. They would hear about the cross of Jesus as the beginning, but it was all based on acts of works after belief. And one could never know if you were saved or not until you died. There was no assurance, there was no comfort, there was no grace. The word of God was only available for priests. In fact, pioneers of the underground church, like Tyndale and Wycliffe, who lived in a couple centuries before that, were burned at the stake for trying to translate the scriptures into the language that people could read. Because after all, only the priests were able to understand scripture, and to put it in the hands of a common man would be heretical and sinful, and we'd have all kinds of bad doctrine going around if we did that. The evangelical church was basically small, underground, scattered, and weak. And in church history, we call these several hundred years between the seven, six and seven hundreds and the Reformation, almost uh, 800 years as the dark ages of the church, where very, very few um, saints uh, and, and, uh, and people of God w were known. And, and consequently, there wasn't much good going on in the rest of the world either as, uh, as things like the Crusades uh, broke out, which had nothing to do with spiritual issues and, and everything to do with uh, uh, religious, quote-unquote, issues, issues of men and not uh, issue, issues of God. Uh, false teaching, like the rise of Islam, uh, came about during, during this time. And uh, it, was a, it was a dark, dark age in, in the church. And in 1517, Martin Luther began the dialogue and the call to the church back to the doctrines of Scripture. Uh, someone who was associated with Martin Luther, uh, young John Calvin, at age eight, uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, probably didn't know about the 95 Theses being knocked, uh, being nailed to the door. But uh, soon after, in the next 10 to 12 years, he would join um, the movement and, uh, and, and add to the writings and uh, the teachings of, of Martin Luther. After Martin Luther um, started debating with, uh, with the Romans, um, he decided that... Uh, he uh, very much liked arguing and debating, so he got married in, uh, uh, in 1525 to Catherine Vaughn. I always, uh, begins with a V, I always forget her name. She was a very spirited lady who loved to argue and debate as much as the theologians did, and uh, she was very, very uh, opinionated for the time, but they had a very happy 21-year marriage before uh, Martin Luther went home to be with the Lord in February of 16, uh, I mean, 1546 uh, at the age of uh, 62 and a half, basically. So not a long life, but a productive life in, indeed. 
and someone who I believe was the most influential person in the last thousand years. So what exactly did Martin Luther do? What exactly did he teach? Well, the Catholic Church at the time, and it was the only church at, at the time, one of the complaints they had about Martin Luther is that he was starting a new religion called Solaism, S-O-L-A, and that's why we're the title of the sermon, A Trip Through the Solar System. Because Martin Luther had, I know, I, I couldn't resist a pun, uh, but uh, Martin Luther had uh, some basic tenets of his teaching, and sola in, in Latin means alone. Uh, if you are a Star Wars fan, like me, Han Solo. What do we know about Han Solo in Star Wars? He didn't partner well with other people, did he? He really lived up to his name. You know, you finally see him get married in Star Wars to the princess, and then you find out in the new Star Wars movies they got divorced. Big surprise. Because he's Han Solo. He does things alone. Uh, that's what Solo means. So three terms that are associated with Martin Luther are sola fide, F-I-D-E, which is faith alone, fide, the Latin word for faith, sola scriptura, that's an easy one, scripture alone, and sola gratia, grace alone. Those three uh, terms uh, summed up a lot of Martin Luther's teachings, and we're going to talk about those uh, and, and how they changed the church and how they changed the world. Uh, the scripture we looked at today comes from uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, and although Martin Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone uh, was, uh, could have been out of Romans 4 also, Ephesians 2 is a parallel passage written by the same individual, Paul. Now we talk about the Reformation. Today is Reformation Sunday. Notice we don't use the word revolution because Martin Luther did not want to start a revolution. He was not creating a new religion. He was calling us back to Paul. He was calling us back to the teachings of Paul, to the teachings of Augustine, to the teachings of Jesus, to the teachings of, of Scripture. And so it was a reformation and not a revolution because it wasn't a new idea. It was calling us back to the gospel truths which the church had gone away from. So what is salvation by faith alone? One of his big tenets. Justification by faith alone. One of the problems in the Catholic Church is that the Catholics would only use, and when I say Catholic Church, I'm talking about the 15th century now, so please, uh, please note, we're, we're talking about the 1500s. I guess that's really the 16th century. Uh, but uh, we're talking about the, the Catholic Church in 1517 used uh, the translation into Latin, and that that Bible, the Latin Bible, was called the Vulgate. It rhymes with Colgate, like the toothpaste, but it's with a V. Vulgate. Um, now, the Vulgate, um, the word justification in the Latin Bible translated literally in English to make righteous or to become righteous. And the priests were teaching that you were justified, in other words, you were made right with God when you acknowledged Jesus' death on the cross and then you did enough works to be able to merit your justification. You were justified because you earned it. You did enough works to be justified, and that was the teaching of the day. Martin Luther had a lot of problem with that. 
Yes, the Catholic Church said faith is important. You have to believe in Christ. You have to acknowledge that he died on the cross, which was the first step. But then after that, you were able to do good works. And the amount of good works you did, once you hit that amount, you were justified. You are justified because you have earned it, because you have done enough just works. And if you didn't do enough, then other people could pass their good works on to you. Uh, very interesting doctrine. But Martin Luther, going back, being a language scholar and understanding Hebrew and understanding Greek, went back to the original scriptures and noticed what that word justification means in Romans 4 when Paul writes, what can we say about our brother Abraham? He was justified by faith. That word in the Greek, justified, is a word pronounced dikio or dikio. I'm not, my Greek pronunciation is not good. D-I-K-A-I-O, I'll spell it. Um, that word, and this makes all the difference in the world, that word does not mean to make righteous. It translates justification. It means to declare righteous. So the translation from the Greek, from the original, says, what can we say about our brother Abraham? He was declared righteous. Now, when it is a legal term used for lawyers uh, it, uh, in, in the Greek, it was a declared, you were declared righteous. Now, I'm going to date myself here, but because some of you weren't born uh, during this time, you know, Hannah Young, if you're out there, you're, you're one of them, you're young. Uh, but in the 1990s, there was a big trial with O.J. Simpson. All you old people remember about O.J. Simpson in the 90s in the trial? And, you know, everybody had an opinion. Was O.J. guilty? Was O.J. not guilty? It doesn't matter what you think about O.J. being guilty or not guilty. You know why it doesn't matter? Because he was declared not guilty by a judge. Dikio, the Greek word. He was declared not guilty. He may have been guilty. He may not have been guilty. It really doesn't matter in our legal system because a judge declared him not guilty. It had nothing to do with his guilt or innocence, really. It had to do with a, a legal standing of being declared not guilty. And no matter what people thought, this was a man declared not guilty by the judge and therefore was... Uh, had access to all the rights and all the privileges of the non-guilty uh, in, our, in our country. It's a legal term, and that is the term used for justification. And so Martin Luther began to teach and understand that we are not justified because of our good works. We are justified only because Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross and that Jesus took our sin on the cross and we took on his righteousness. That's a fancy theological term called imputation. Impute, imputation. It means that you, uh, uh, or double imputation, because Jesus uh, takes on our sin and died on the cross and paid for our sin, and we took on his righteousness. Now, the church of the day basically said, you can't have this doctrine of imputation. How can you take on, how can Jesus take on your sin? How can you take on his righteousness? That's a heretical doctrine. 
Interesting enough, though, that when it came to their doctrine of works, they said that a person can take on somebody else's extra good works in order to get out of purgatory early. And guess what that is? That's a form of imputation. You took on somebody else's nature. So hopefully not to get you confused, but the whole idea that justification, being made right with God, had nothing to do with works and everything to do with Christ's death on the cross and that we are saved because of faith in Christ and because of his death on the cross and his payment for our sins. This is what Martin Luther brought back into focus in which John Calvin picked up his theme a few years later and started teaching in Switzerland. And John Knox, a few years later, picked up this theme and started teaching in Scotland. And that's where the Presbyterian Church came from. Um, and others started teaching. And, uh, and, uh, and a couple of centuries later, the Baptist Church and the Methodist Church with Wesley, they all... Uh, started teaching this doctrine. Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, probably the greatest thinking mind America has ever had. Um, and, uh, and around the world, the church was revived and changed, and missionaries went forth, and, uh, and things started happening. And uh, all because Martin Luther was used by God to bring back this doctrine of justification by faith alone. So what does it mean by faith alone? Just a quick comment. If I was to ask you, are you saved because of your faith? Many people would say yes, and, and that's the wrong answer, as those who are going through elder leadership are, are learning. We're not justified because of our faith. We're justified because Christ died on the cross for our sins. Our faith is a connection. Our faith in Christ is what saves us because Christ died on the cross for our sins. So faith in the wrong thing does not save you. So when we talk about justification by faith, the faith needs to be in the right object. If I believe that Ronnie died on the cross for my sins and that he truly paid the price and my faith was super strong, it would do no good because Ronnie didn't die on the cross for my sin. My faith was misplaced. So the faith has to be placed in the right, in the right object and our faith is in Christ. So the faith is a connecting point. It connects us. So when someone says, I have faith and therefore I'm saved. That's not always a true statement. One is saved because they believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The faith is in the fact that Jesus is Lord of the world and that he paid the price for my sin on the cross. And, and that is where the faith comes in. So by faith alone, what does alone mean? Alone means that the good works we do after becoming believers are in a response because Jesus saved us and changed our nature, and it's a, it's a response of love to him. It has nothing to do with saving us. We do good works not in order to earn points with God. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we are saved, because we are given a new nature, and because God has changed us. And that's the doctrine of faith alone. Now, you just got the 10-minute version the, the poor group that has to sit through my uh, elder and deacon leadership training got two weeks worth of it. So, um, What else did Martin Luther bring? Um, scripture alone. 
What is so important about, what do you mean scripture alone? Well, the Roman church had another doctrine. They said, yes, scripture is authoritative, but so are the decrees of the Pope and the church. That if the church teaches it, that settles it. And therefore, in the sixth century, because the Bible did not speak of it, Pope Gregory decreed that Jesus' mother Mary indeed lived a sinless, perfect life and ascended into heaven like Jesus did. Now many people, when they share the gospel with modern-day Catholics, say, I don't understand, you know, purgatory is not in the Bible, and Mary's perfect life and, and ascending into heaven is not in the Bible. How can you believe this? Well, one has to understand the doctrine of authority for this. The Roman Catholic Church, and they still do believe this today, that they believe in the authority of Scripture. They believe that what Scripture teaches is true. But they believe that the church and the, the pope have equal authority to Scripture. And if they decree it, then it is as true as if Scripture taught it. Martin Luther, again, brought the church back to the focus that, no, it is Scripture, Scripture alone, that is our supreme authority. And Martin Luther even said of his own preaching, if it doesn't agree with Scripture, ignore it. Don't listen to it, of his own teaching. Uh, he was very colorful, and so he had very graphic, uh, you know, he was a little more graphic than that, but I, I, I kind of watered down the statement. Uh, so, uh, but uh, he used uh, uh, Scripture, among others, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That word complete meaning totally sufficient, needing no other. So Martin Luther also used Romans, which was his favorite book, to teach in Romans 3, that all men have sinned, all have gone astray. No one is good, no, not one. And I'm quoting Romans 3, verses 9 through 14, which is a repeat of Psalm 14, um, saying that we can't have, the, uh, the Pope cannot be perfect, the church cannot be perfect. It, it, um, it does not carry the same authority Scripture does. Martin Luther reiterated the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning that Scripture is perfect and accurate in its original language. The Catholic Church had gone a little lack in that doctrine at the time. They believe that Scripture is inerrant in the areas of faith and practice, but not in history and science. And for the Catholics, that is true because their Apocrypha, which is the extra books of the Bible that our Bible doesn't have, has historical error in it in particular during the time between Malachi and the uh, coming of Jesus. They have books called the Maccabees, which have historical error uh, in them. So the whole idea of Scripture alone, Scripture is the supreme authority. This is what Martin Luther taught. That Scripture alone should be our, um, our teacher and guide and, and, um, and, and direct us. Now, Contrary to what the church at Rome believed, Martin Luther was not saying don't listen to your elders and don't listen to your pastors. 
In fact, he wrote many, many um, books and, and commentaries. But he is saying that when your pastors and when your elders teach, you need to compare it to scripture. And you need to recognize there are long years of study and there are, there are years of expertise. But at the end of the day, even doing that, you are bound first to scripture and not to your, because your pastor said it or because your elder said it. And this was part of the whole idea of scripture alone. Scripture alone is our authority, not the church, but the scriptures. And in particular, he used this about indulgences, that doctrine of indulgences at the time, which was completely contrary to scripture. The doctrine of purgatory, which was completely doctrine, uh, which was completely uh, contrary to scripture. The third sola that uh, Martin Luther talked about was sola gracia, grace alone. I'll talk just less about this, but Martin Luther brought back the idea of God's grace uh, controls and rules in the life and that everything uh, of the believer and that everything we have is by grace alone and it's by God's grace. And he taught that even after we become Christians, our good works are still tainted with sin and the rewards that God is going to give us in heaven are not what we deserve. They are greatly, greatly above what we deserve. And uh, so if, if someone asks you, uh, you know, your good works in heaven, are we, are we going to be rewarded? Are we going to be rewarded for our good works? The answer is yes. Are we going to be rewarded, rewarded according to what our good works deserve? The answer is no. We're going to be rewarded by God's grace. Because if God rewarded us be, uh, on uh, what our good works deserve, we wouldn't get much. We wouldn't get anything. Because even we, when we do acts of kindness, many times they're tainted by acts of selfishness, jealousy, um, trying to uh, one-up our neighbors, and uh, just wanting people to think well of us. Uh, but God will reward us, and God promises the scripture rewards, not according to what we deserve, but according to his great grace. And even after we are believers and we stumble and we fall, God's grace abounds in our lives, and God will reward us. That it is grace throughout our lives and not our works. Our works, even after being believers, are still tainted and, and corrupted. But God calls us to good works, to acts of mercy and justice and obedience. And even those, as weak and feeble as they are, God will reward because of his grace. So those are three of the very, very critical doctrines that God used Martin Luther to... Um, to bring to the church uh, and uh, bring to the world 504 years ago today. Well, how has that changed the world? And how has that changed? The, because I, I submitted that Martin Luther was, uh, you know, the most significant individual in the last thousand years. And uh, uh, how does that top the Wright brothers, you know, who allow us to be able to quickly respond to disasters around the world now because we can fly? Or, or Benjamin uh, Ben Franklin, who um, invented uh, electricity and and, and heaven forbid, we wouldn't have cell phones if it weren't for electricity. Uh, you know, and, and how could we live without cell phones and, and others? Well, um, th there are uh, many things that uh, Martin Luther uh, is directly 
attributed to uh, changing in the church and the world and many others that are anecdotal. But some of the more entertaining ones, is it's widely thought that uh, Martin Luther um, began the, uh, the custom of the lighted Christmas tree. Not that that changed the world a lot, but, uh, uh, but basically when we put lights on our Christmas tree, uh, that is uh, mostly attributed to Martin Luther who was the first to put lighted candles on the Christmas tree to signify Jesus being the light of the world. Okay, we, and with our 21st century minds, we're thinking, uh, not too smart there, Martin. Uh, uh, you know, we, we all know what happens when you put lighted candles on Christmas trees. But I'm, I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure he was careful, but, uh, but many, many uh, attribute that, uh, uh, that to him. But that's not, uh, I wouldn't say that's one of the most significant ones, but I thought that was an entertaining one anyway. But uh, how did Martin Luther change the world and the church? Well, one of the things, his doctrine of sola scriptura led to a doctrine in our church called the doctrine of perspicuity. P-E-R-P-I-S-C-U-I-T-Y, perspicuity. That is a really, really difficult word that means clarity. So it's an unclear word for clear. <laughs> but what is the doctrine of perspicuity? The doctrine of perspicuity basically said that God wrote the scriptures in a way that the average man and woman can understand them. A total, total reversal from the last thousand years of what the church was teaching. So what happened in that doctrine? Well, it took a little while because in 1555, which is 12 years after, or nine years after Martin Luther died, Hugh Lattimore was burned at the stake in England for wanting to promote the Bible in English. But 50 years after that, King James um, um, pushed for and got the translation of the scriptures into England. So it took a little while. The scriptures were translated into German. Martin Luther was responsible for that. The scriptures were translated into every language in the world following that and was put into the hands of the common man because of Martin Luther's doctrine of scripture alone. And for the first time ever, the word of God was available to the common man. Uh, if that isn't one of the most significant things that happened in, in, in history, I, I don't know what is. That the eternal truth of the world and the universe was finally put in the, the hands of uh, the common man. Uh, Martin Luther's uh, teaching of scripture alone went one step further. John Calvin took this one step further. If the scriptures are truly for every man and woman and child, we need to educate every man, woman, and child to be able to read so that they can read the scriptures. And because of Martin Luther's teachings, John Calvin took this one step uh, further. And John Calvin is, um, is credited by most accurate historical uh, resources as the father of the public school. John Calvin created the first public school system in Geneva 
for the purpose of teaching young boys and girls to be able to read the scriptures. A radical change uh, in, in, in the world, uh, which, which, which took on. Uh, later on, universities were started. Uh, most universities in our nation, I don't know if you know this or not, but most universities in our nation were started so that theology could be studied at an advanced level and that the word of God could be preached and, and taught. So the scriptures to the common man, the scriptures to um, uh, the, the public schools so that uh, boys and girls could learn to, to read the scriptures. What else? Uh, the Puritans took the teaching. Uh, the Puritans uh, were only 50 years after the death of Luther and, and Calvin. Uh, the Puritans uh, said, if scripture is that important and we need to be studying that, we need to do this more than Sundays. We need to start small group studies where we can study the scripture together and fellowship and pray for each other. The Puritans were um, uh, widely credited in church history for starting the modern day small groups that we have in our churches now to study the scriptures, to pray for each other. Uh, all coming from this doctrine of uh, scripture alone. And the fourth major thing that happened was the church service was totally transformed. Until the time of Martin Luther, the focus on the church service was on the reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ in the, in the Lord's Supper. If you've ever gone to a Catholic church, uh, you'll have a sermon, but then they'll have a kind of a reenactment of the crucifixion followed by the, the Lord's Supper, uh, where they'll, they'll say prayers and, and, and focus on the uh, and focus on the sacrament and then, and then offer the sacrament. The, uh, that was true of church until the time of Luther. And then the focus of the church changed. It changed from the sacraments being the focus to the word of God being preached as the focus of the church. And now in every Bible-believing church around the world, the focus of the church worship is the preaching of God's word. Compassionate missions uh, grew out of this. Now, there were some compassionate missions. St. Francis of Assisi and others uh, had compassionate ministries, but usually missions were more like the Crusades. Aggressive, you know, takeover ministries. But uh, uh, recognizing God's mercy and grace alone and that it's not, are not our good works, but, but by grace. Uh, Martin Luther's teaching led to increased compassionate ministries and Christians running orphanages and, uh, and the poor uh, and, and, uh, and were the, the driving force. Uh, the government being involved in helping the poor is a, is a rather modern uh, phenomena over the last 100 years, 150 years. Before, it was strictly the Bible-believing church uh, that, that did this. So Compassion Ministries came out of the work of, of Martin Luther. And, of course, some of the most, the, the most important, um, a revival uh, worldwide of the gospel going out and the gospel being accurately claimed. The whole idea of faith alone for salvation. People were hearing the truth. And after a thousand years of 
almost no one hearing uh, the truth of the gospel, the gospel being reproclaimed that Jesus is Lord and that one can have a personal relationship with him by faith alone. Millions and millions and millions of people have been reached for Christ through the, the gospel being presented. In the 20th century, that same gospel, uh, people like Billy Graham, uh, the great revivals of the world that, that uh, he led for, for 70 years, where millions and millions came to know the Lord in, in every country, in every tribe. The scriptures promise us that heaven is going to be a multicultural party of many tribes and many nations. That all really came true in, in a big, huge way with this one individual bringing back the truths of salvation by faith alone, scripture alone is our authority, and grace alone is how God works. And so we celebrate this on um, the last Sunday of each October, but the actual date was October 31st. So whenever you're discouraged about Halloween not, not being a, a fun day, just, just remember Halloween is a fun day because it's also Reformation Day. And it's a day we celebrate how God used uh, one individual, Martin Luther, to bring a revival like none other uh, to the church in the last 504 years. Even though today we see strife, we see turmoil, we see upheaval in our nation, we know that the gospel is still going forward, not only in our nation, but around the world. And the same doctrines of scripture alone, grace alone, and faith alone are being preached in every country. I'll close by saying, you know, just so we don't elevate Martin Luther to the, you know, to the point of, of, of Jesus, Martin Luther was a man like you and I. He was a sinner. Uh, he uh, was very impatient and ungracious to those he argued with. Uh, Martin Luther would not be ordained in our denomination because his view of the Lord's Supper was not what we would consider scriptural. He still believed the way the Catholics did. He had no issue with their view that the, the body and the blood was actually the body and blood of Christ. Uh, we'd probably have to deal with Martin Luther dealing with other people in our presbytery that disagreed with him and he'd be getting into good arguments and, and brawls with them. Uh, he wasn't a perfect man and so as, as we tout how God used him today, I feel compelled to bring up that he was a man like you and I and women too, uh, still sin-laden in his life, still with a lot of areas that he struggled with, but in all that, a saved man because of the work of what Jesus did on the cross and, and faith that he put in his Lord and Savior. So as we think of our own lives, the sin that we have, the struggles that we have, and recognize how God used someone, every bit as sinful as you and me, to change the world. Ask Jesus on this Reformation uh, Sunday how he can use you to influence and bring change in, in somebody's life who you might be near, whether it be a friend, 
a schoolmate, a co-worker, a relative, a neighbor, because God uses all of us, as imperfect and as sinful as we are, to continue his work and to advance his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Martin Luther. We thank you that we can celebrate that this day. We thank you for how you literally changed the world and changed the church through one man's life. But we thank you more that you are king and you are Lord and that you work through sinful man to continue to advance your kingdom today. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.